I told you it was coming. It was going to be here the next day. And oh, yes, it's here. (laughs) Uh, Got a little fun one here for you. Uh, Just a little extra uh, Patreon, you know, extra uh, Sovereign Tech subscriber content. Uh, I, you know, funny thing. Here's a real funny thing. So I'm on the Yeti right now. Okay. Uh, And I'm in the dungeon. Uh, This is where I do all of my, all of my workouts. Uh, I work out really often. (laughs) So fortunately though, we, we have this, uh, the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and I. Um, Anyway, this morning I started recording this and what I'm going to be doing, I, I I mentioned this yesterday in the, uh, it was the Q and a episode number three, uh, which by the way, some people have said is one of the best episodes of Sovereign Tech they've ever heard. Of course, you only get it if you're a Patreon subscriber, uh, you know, if you're a patron as they, as they're called. Uh, but anyway, really honored that that's there. Maybe I'll, I'll throw something together. So, you know, like a, a little clip so that people can get enticed, uh, if they listen to, you know, when they listen to a regular episode of Sovereign Tech, I can play that little clip and maybe they'll want to get in on all the fun because I am trying to deliver as much fun as I can here, uh, with, with, you know, all of the extra content. But anyway, this morning, I got up kind of early and I was like, all right, I'm going to record this. We're doing the Star Trek, you know, we're ranking all of the Star Trek movies. We're going to, there's going to, we're going to rank 15 of them. I know what you're thinking. 15. What the fuck? (laughs) Uh, Because there aren't 15 movies, at least not technically, Um, but we're going to rank them. And, uh, and I was like, all right, here we go. I'm going to do it. And I started recording. I was about a half hour in and I suddenly realized, I won't go into why, but I suddenly realized that. Holy shit, I'm recording all of this. I'm not recording it in the studio. I'm recording it, or you know, with studio microphone. I'm recording it with my laptop's microphone. God damn it. I didn't switch things over in Audacity. <laughs> I was so pissed off. I mean, and myself and nobody else. Uh, you know, my, my anger seethes internally. So <laughs> kind of like the old Savzu saying, uh, you know, the only good anger is the nonviolent kind. Um, so... <laughs> Anyway, uh, actually, and those people that know Lao Tzu might might get the joke there. Or it's not a joke. I'm serious. I don't I don't think anger should be violent. Uh, I mean, you know, seriously, think about that. Like a lot of these people that are so big on you know carrying a gun and everything. Do you see just how like off the handle they get a lot of times? Yeah, I am a little worried about them carrying a gun. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about too. Uh, but anyway, that's that's a complete side note. Uh, so. Here we are ready to do We're We're going to break down. I'm going to try and keep this as brief as possible because this, I mean, some, like I've said, some of the, some episodes of the, the subscriber content uh, could be very lengthy. Other episodes could be incredibly short. Hell, I, I imagine I could do a 15 minute episode on something and you better believe that might come. Uh, in fact, I used to do this. It was called Sovereign Tech Quickies. I, I think I only did two or three of them, uh, but you can find them in the main Sovereign Tech feed. Uh, you know, if you want to listen to to what that that would sort of shape up or sound like. So anyway, people are really, really enjoying the subscriber content. Thank you so much. Hopefully we'll get a lot more. I mean, you know, I reach out to thousands of people and I don't even have a hundred, uh, you know, subscribing to Patreon right now. And that's fine. If nobody wants to, if they don't want it, that they don't have to get it. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> come on, people join up. <laughs> so, of course, I'm talking to people that already have. So who cares? Um Anyway, I want to announce, and maybe this is one of the one of the barriers to entry for a lot of people. Uh, Patreon, I get emails from Patreon, you know, since I'm a creator, 
uh, that they let you know, like uh, of upcoming features and all this. So this is an upcoming feature. It's not a feature that exists right now. And admittedly, they Patreon has been really good about delivering features um, when they say that they're going to come. So one of the upcoming features that they've talked or that I just heard about, this was yesterday, actually, otherwise I would have announced it in yesterday's show, is they're going to create RSS feeds for audio content. So what that means potentially depends on how they implement it is that you, the, you know, you, the sovereign tech patrons will be able to, to have an RSS feed that you could plug into your podcast app, whichever one you use, pocket casts, uh, antenna pod or, you know, or iTunes, whatever you happen to use, you could plug that in and then you could just download the shows through that instead of having to either stream them from the Patreon mobile, sovereign tech mobile website or to download them from the, from, the webs- from the Patreon website, which you can download them from there. Uh, they're just underneath the cover art is the download link for it. So, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see. As soon as that's available, I will update everybody and I'll let everybody knows how, know how it goes. I mean, I have to admit, I am nothing but impressed at the platform that Patreon is. I mean, this is a real potential game changer. Patreon might become, before I get into the Star Trek, real quick, Patreon just might become, and I'll probably say this on this week's Sovereign Tech as well, it might just become the the thing that I've said needs to exist for podcasts. Like, there needs to be that platform that allows you to highlight podcasts, that, that turns podcasting into a very serious medium, as in you can make money off of doing it, uh, you know, within itself and all this. Uh, I think Patreon could really become that. Um, I'm, I'm very intrigued to see how that future shapes up. Uh, so, you know, Amazon has made moves towards it. Apple completely dropped the ball. Uh, Google has the potential to become that platform since they added podcasts to the Google Play Music platform, uh, you know, a few months ago. Uh, so there's a lot of, a lot of potential there. We'll see. Uh, but maybe Patreon is actually going to become the thing. And maybe them creating RSS feeds specifically for audio content might be a hint at the fact that they are looking in that direction. Anyway, I just want you to know that that's coming. I know, actually, I've already had a couple people ask me, you know, could I get an RSS feed of this stuff? Um, yes. As soon as something like that exists, uh, I will make that available. It just, you know, the, the content is blocked off to only Sovereign Tech patrons. Uh, so, you know, I'd have to work around that. Um, anyway, Let's get into uh, the, the little the little special we've got here. I, I'm really excited about doing this because I think this is fun. Um, I've done many a time. I've done top ten or top eight actually because five and ten. I mean, these are just they're fucking totally random numbers. There's no other than perhaps like people you know count ten fingers or five fingers or something. There's no really good reason to do a top five list or a top ten list. Uh, you know, than any other number. You might, you just pick the fucking number. It doesn't matter. You know, it's totally arbitrary. Uh, so I always did top eight just to be arbitrary and not so arbitrary. Admittedly, I was playing around with base 12 math, uh, which if you don't know about base 12 math, well, that that's from a sovereign tech episode a little while back. Uh, it's a very interesting topic. Um, but anyway, so I am not doing a top eight. I am going to do every Star Trek movie and we're going to break them down in order, in order, or not in order of when they released, but in order of my perceived greatness of them. Uh, and, and this is important. I mean, well, it's, we're going to start with the, the least. Okay. We'll start at the bottom, you know, what is the worst one? And then we'll end up getting to the best. Uh, but I, 
I think this is important for me to do because I feel like I take a very unique tech on a lot of, on a lot of, well, Star Trek in general, but really all of entertainment. Um, maybe I just have different values for what I'm looking for. Uh, you know, and, and this is, this is really key to keep in mind is that people can really, you know, what one person sees as a strength, another person can see as a weakness. For example, a lot of Star Trek movies, there have been complaints about them because some see them as being very, uh, like they're too episodic. They're too, not, not episodic as in like there's, you know, continuation, but they're episodic in that they feel too much like an episode of Star Trek. Okay. Now, if you listen to episode 185 of Sovereign Tech, I talked about this. Um, I said that because that's a, that's a critique being made of Star Trek Beyond is that it feels like a glorified episode. This is also a critique of the movie Star Trek Insurrection from back in the 90s. Okay. It was that it just felt too much like a, like a glorified episode. I don't have a problem with that. Obviously, the episodes are fucking great. So why is it a problem that there's movies that feel like episodes. I don't care. I just want more Star Trek. It's fine. Um, but other people, I get their critique. I understand what they're saying. You know, especially, uh, I brought this up with Star Trek Beyond. You know, why is it a plus with reviews of Star Trek Beyond that it feels like a glorified episode? But then with Star Trek Insurrection, it felt like, um, you know, it was like a knock. It was like that, you know, this sucks. It sucks because it feels like a glorified episode. And in my, you know, of course I explained what I think the reason is. The reason is, is that at the time when Insurrection came out, which is, you know, 1998, 99, um, that there was so much Star Trek on television. You had Voyager, you had DS9 and Next Generation was still making the heavy rounds on syndication and all of this, even though the show had ended, um, that, you know, you needed to deliver something special if you wanted people to lay down the money and take the time to go see a Star Trek thing in theaters. Okay. So, you know, I, a lot of the critiques I can really understand that people have for some of these movies, but then they are, it's, it's really, you know, value is subjective and it is a matter of opinion. What some people see as a flaw, I see as a strength. So, but to start off the list, well, for, before I, I break into the full list, because the, the, to start off, we're going to talk about flaws. Um, before I break into the, you know, the full list, I, I'm going to start with number 15. And number 15 is actually two movies, Star Trek of Gods and Men and Star Trek Renegades. Now, neither of these are part of, you know, the official canon via the prime timeline, which is the Star Trek that you've known all the way up until J.J. Abrams took it over in 2009, or the Kelvin timeline, which is what J.J. Abrams started doing with the past three films uh, in 2009. So those are the differentiators. Neither of these really take place in that. In fact, Star Trek of Gods and Men takes place in a totally different uh, timeline, you know, uh, like a parallel universe of sorts, Uh, which is fine. Those work in Star Trek. Star Trek Renegades is supposed to be a continuation of the prime timeline. But now, of course, Star Trek Renegades, uh, they're filming more episodes of Ren- Star Trek Renegades, but it's just called Renegades because they are kowtowing to Paramount and CBS and saying, okay, we won't step on your toes with all this legal lawsuit bullshit. And so we're not making a Star Trek any show anymore. Now it's just Renegades. Um, you know, when that finally comes out, when the, the continuing episodes of Renegades comes out, uh, we'll see just how much could you just like insert the word Star Trek and see what happens, you know, and see if it still makes sense to you. I kind of hope it works out that way because really I don't need another show. I don't care. I, I, you know, I watched Renegades because it was Star Trek. If it was anything else, I probably wouldn't have watched it. It's no offense to the hard work, the great acting and all that that got put into that production. Uh, I like the guy that made it. Scott 
Guy Conway, uh, who is a libertarian and, and an anarchist. He's, he was in many ways behind uh, the event in San Diego called Libertopia that went for a few years, which I've attended. Great time. Um, you know, I, I don't have any problem with that. It's just, I want Star Trek. But anyway, on its own, also, you know, Star Trek of Gods and Men, I'm, I'm, kind, of, I'm kind of counting both of these as, um, you know, as, as number 15 on this list. Uh, and actually, I think this other guy also had some involvement with, uh, you know, both of these films, I think, had a kind of a shared production team to some degree. I could be wrong about that, but I think it's true. Because Star Trek of Gods and Men uh, was made by J. Neil Shulman. J. Neil Shulman is famous for writing the very the excellent anarchist book uh, from like 30 years ago called Alongside Night, which is all about agorism and all that. I really love that book. I enjoy that book. Uh, don't watch the movie of that book that J. Neil Shulman also made. It's, uh, it's terrible. <laughs> uh, but, you know, no offense to J. Neil, but I know you tried and you had Kevin Sorbo in it. Yay, Hercules, but come on. Um, so of Gods and Men and Renegades, you know, getting into the plot points. Well, I've kind of talked about them on Sovereign Tech in the past. I won't do that. I just wanted them in there to, to, to really be an honorable mention. Uh, because I think they're both very well done. Renegades is particularly very well done and has great acting and great, great everything going for it. It's a pity that it's not going to be Star Trek going forward. I would have really enjoyed that. But whatever, you know, you know, there it is. But those are out there. If you want something extracurricular that maybe you didn't know existed, do check out. I mean, and there's others. There's Horizon. There's Star Trek Horizon. I could have mentioned that. That was really well done. Uh, and of course, I mean, there's lots of, um, you know, there's Axnar, which may never come into existence. Uh, I mean, there's lots of great independent productions. I hate to even call them fan films because they're obviously done so well. But there's lots of theatrical independent productions that have been made that are worth watching. Horizon, Star Trek Horizon is another one that looks really, really good. It has a very unique style. Uh, but anyway, I thought it important to mention that, you know, a couple of, uh, you know, libertarian and anarchists, I don't want to say necessarily luminaries, but, you know, names within the space uh, are, take Star Trek very seriously, just as I do. Uh, and they have made films, you know, they, they've gone that, that direction. Um, you know, it's a long running joke. I mean, why am I doing a Star Trek, a little Star Trek special here? It's not, well, I shouldn't say it's not a long running joke. It's a long running tradition. Uh, it's not a rule. I'm an anarchist, but a long running tradition that I mention Star Trek in every episode, or I allude to Star Trek in every episode of Sovereign Tech. I didn't plan on that, but ever since episode one of Sovereign Tech, it's happened. <laughs> okay. It's, it's happened more or less. Uh, maybe there's a couple episodes where I didn't, where I didn't quote it or bring it up or something like that, but it's always there. It's always been there. Uh, so, you know, deal with it. And so I'm doing a little, little ranking here. Uh, and you know, ranking down the Star Trek films is a popular thing to do right now because of Star Trek beyond, uh, and because largely the very positive reaction by people to Star Trek, Star Trek beyond. Now there's a lot of fans that don't accept anything that JJ Abrams have done. I appreciate your perspective because I, there are certain, I mean, like with Battlestar Galactica, holy fuck, do I feel that way? I don't care what Ron Moore has ever done. I don't care how popular the, the sci-fi channels Battlestar Galactica was. It's rubbish. It's crap. It insults the originals. You know, it, it, it doesn't even come close to what the 78 Galactica was delivering. All right. So I, I can really appreciate your stance. I like the Kelvin timeline movies though. In fact, I like them so much and this is, this is quite the statement, I think, <laughs> is that they are not the worst films on this list. 
as much as I love the prime timeline and, you know, I, when I think Star Trek, that's generally what I think about is everything that happened in the prime timeline. Uh, they are not at the bottom of this list. They're close, but they're not at the bottom. What is at the bottom of this list? We did number 15, which is just those, you know, very honorable mentions of, uh, of independent productions, uh, that aren't really canon. Like I said, in any timeline you look at though, horizon does a good job of being sort of in the, the enterprise timeline. Um, But uh, let's get into number 14. And number 14, we start off with Star Trek Nemesis. I don't think this should shock anybody. Um, I really personally feel that for any Star Trek fan, I am in awe if this is not, you know, when looking at all of the films, that this is not at the bottom of your list. Uh, I love it. You know, I still enjoy it. It's still Star Trek. Stylistically, it's got so much going for it. It has a great score. Uh, you know, Jerry Goldsmith delivered the goods as usual. Um, the, a lot of the st- the acting is great. There's a lot of great scenes in it. I love the wedding scene. I love the scene with the Argo, even though I do have a problem. I mean, so this is where a lot of people have issues with this movie, right? Is that there's a lot of little things that they could have done better or that didn't just didn't seem to fit right. Uh, and this will be a problem that we'll talk about in the next movie on this list too. Again, we're going from worst to best. So the Argo, part of my problem with the Argo is that a lot of the, a lot of the sort of, sort of, uh, how to put this, the subconscious ability of technology for the Federation, uh, you know, and I don't even, And I don't know how, you know, when this hall started, but I think there's this subconscious flair there that I've never really heard anybody else talk about, but I think it's there, uh, is that your technology does, the Starfleet's technology doesn't leave any trace. Say it, say it, it, you go on a planet. It really doesn't leave any trace that anybody was there. And that's because the prime directive, right? Now, obviously the prime directive, well, no, actually the prime directive didn't exist transporters came into play for, you know, organic material for human beings before there was a prime directive. So, so never mind what I was about to say, but anyway, I I feel like the Argo, which is this really cool. And I love the scene and it's a funny scene and seeing Picard and data drive and, you know, and Worf driving around on this, like, you know, uh, dune buggy effectively, you know, this 24th century dune buggy is awesome. I really like that. And I like that it was something new, like something you didn't see in Star Trek before. And that made it kind of cool. And I agree. It was really cool, but admittedly the Argo kind of, yeah, you know, like <laughs> something that has tire tracks. Like if you're on a, on a planet and maybe there's a rule that you can't use the Argo on a planet where the prime directive is in play. If you're on a planet where, you know, there's a, there's a, a you know, a primitive civilization, you don't want to leave tire tracks. Okay, you really don't want to leave footprints either, but, you know, those are a little more easy breezy to get away. Uh, You know, you don't want to leave tire tracks. So I think the Argo is kind of a dumbass idea for Starfleet, right? Like something that floats more of a shuttlecraft style on a repulsor lift, you know, kind of like a a speeder in Star Wars or something. That makes a little more sense. What something that doesn't even have landing gear. Uh, In fact, I I mean, this is kind of a problem I even had with, you know, my favorite Star Trek show uh, is Star Trek Voyager. Um, one of my problems with Star Trek Voyager is that the ship's, the ship lands and it's just like, yeah, that's cool that it can do that. And it's nice if it's necessary, they can make that happen. But like, you'd never really land on a planet where, you know, the prime directive was in play because you're going to see these, you know, you're going to see the remains or this massive print, you know, from, (laughs) from a starship or something. I mean, I'm, I'm being nitpicky, but you know, 
that's what's fun about Star Trek is it's so fully realized. That's what makes it so exciting is because, you know, they're like the rules in one episode seem to, or at least try to play by the same rules in another episode. And so you have a continuity that, that makes you, that really helps you lose uh, or it really helps bring on your suspension of disbelief in what you're seeing. That's very important. Um, so I thought the Argo was kind of dumb. Whatever. All right, I, I'm, I'm done talking about that. <laughs> I don't want to spend so much time talking about Nemesis. It's going to, I mean, I'll probably spend a lot of time talking about Nemesis because it's the one that, I mean, it's the least. Like, why is it the least? So many other movies you can just say in one word. You can just say, oh, that was great. You know, or in one phrase, you can say that was great. You can't really say that with Nemesis. It wasn't great. I mean, it was good. It was very good. It was great. You know, uh, I was listening to a podcast, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, and they were doing a review of Star Trek Beyond. Uh, it was a great review. I totally recommend checking it out. Uh, it's a great podcast. Wired puts it out there with David Barr Curley. It's good. Um, and in that, there was one of the panelists on there who said, you got to understand. He said, I will watch. This is him talking. I will watch the worst hour of Star Trek before I'll watch anything else because everything else pales in comparison to Star Trek. I totally agree with that statement. Okay, I mean, Star Wars is there. Yeah, you know, you know, I mean, there's, there's Babylon 5. I mean, you know, I, that, that's not an across-the-board statement. But, but the sentiment I totally agree with is that, you know, even the worst hours of Star Trek, like Nemesis, are still leaps and bounds better than the bulk of what comes out in, out of Hollywood and, you know, entertainment in general. Um, so, you know, Nemesis was supposed to set up. You got to understand, if Nemesis was a success... Uh, this was something that was going to set up, you know, future adventures, future movies. It was going to change uh, a lot of what we understand about the next generation crew and sort of the direction that the next generation was going in films. It failed, you know, and it didn't have good critical reception. So that direction was not taken uh, and, and largely, I think, led to Enterprise, the show, Star Trek Enterprise, being developed and them going, you know, back in time since the future I guess for a lot of people seemed bleak because of Nemesis. Um, but Nemesis wasn't all bad. You know, I, I mean, I didn't like, I, you know, something else I didn't like. Before, you know, Data's predecessor, I really wish they could have, I mean, I know there's really no way to do it, but I really wish they could have figured out a way to just put lore in there. And that way you could have had the character of Data going forward, even if it was just in the novels or the comic books. You could have the character of Data going forward, and maybe they could still do this before, to where, okay, you know, because you get the hint that Data's memory engrams are all put into B4, so eventually B4 will become Data. And, of course, if you if you accept the, you know, what the events of the 2009 Star Trek and its uh, comic book prequel as canon, then you know Data becomes the captain of the Enterprise, and Data, of course, does come back, uh, you know, because Data helps Ambassador Spock get into the situation where Romulus blows up and you know, everything happens to where you end up in the, the 2009 Star Trek film. Um, I really would have loved it if, like, Lore was there. That way there could have been, like, somebody could have had the, the story idea to where Lore kind of comes in. You know, because Data is always wrestling with his emotion chip. What happens when, like, a really dark character like Lore starts to come to the fore? Not just emotions, but Lore himself. And, and Data, like, has, to, has this real internal struggle of dealing with, you know, an evil version of himself. Uh, th that could have made for fantastic movies, uh, stories in general, at least. I mean, it would have been great. So it's a pity that that didn't happen. Maybe B4 could have worked that out too. I don't know, but whatever. 
but you know, again, stylistically, there was a lot of really cool stuff in this show, in, in, in this show or in this movie, uh, in Nemesis. I love the fact that we finally got to see the Remans. We always knew about the Remans because, uh, from the original series, there was, uh, you know, the, the, the classic shot in the episode Balance of Terror, where they're talking about the Earth-Romulan War, which takes place in the 2160s, which we sadly never got to see because Enterprise got canceled. Um, but in that, you see there is Romulus and Remus, you know, the planet Remus. It is, a you know, a twin empire of sorts. And that's why the eagle is always held two globes, you know, the, or that that bird of prey that is the symbol for the Romulan Empire always holds two globes, Romulus and Remus. But you never got to see the Remans, uh, you know, and, and I mean, obviously, you know, the history of Romulus and Remus, that comes from uh, the founding of the Roman Empire, which the Romulans were originally based on, thus Rom, Rom, Rome, you know, uh, <laughs> in their uniforms back in the, the original series, particularly, uh, you know, Romulus and Remus were the twins that founded Rome, you know, they suckled on the teat of a wolf and all this stuff, right? Uh, you know, all that mythology and everything. And so it was great for you know, Star Trek's mythology to get filled in with what the Remans actually are. I thought that was kind of cool. How they're exactly, you know, how that all fits in with the idea that the Romulans were an offshoot of Vulcan and then the Remans were there. Well, you don't, you don't really get that story so much. Uh, but I thought that that was really cool. It was great to see the Remans. I thought the Scimitar was an awesome ship. Like the new Romulan ships, all that was really cool. The way the movie opened up with that, that, um, like that, that, that organic bomb that kills the entire Senate chamber. I mean, like that was so unique. Like this was new. This was dark Star Trek. And I thought that that was really cool. That was a direction to, to see. Um, and fortunately into darkness, you know, really like, like went even further with this idea of there being a very dark edge to Star Trek and deep space nine did that to some degree too, certainly. Um, but nemesis, it had a lot of potential, you know, and there's a lot of good stuff in it. A lot of good scenes. The style of it is great. I love the style. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's just, I don't know, nobody seemed to be delivering exactly what they needed to, to deliver. There were some funny moments, uh, for sure. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was, there was some parts of Star Trek were just missing and this wasn't a reboot. So you couldn't get away with that. (laughs) Uh, so Nemesis overall, again, I thought it was very good, but it definitely has its problems and it puts it at the bottom of the list. Okay. Next one. Uh, number 13. Generations, Star Trek Generations. This is another one where I felt it's good. In fact, the first 15, 20 minutes with the Enterprise B, where, you know, it's, it's uh, Sulu, or not Sulu, uh, Deborah Sulu's there. It's great to meet her. But with, uh, with, with Chekhov and Scotty and Kirk, you know, dealing uh, with the captain there. I mean, like all, that was, that was dynamite. Like it was so funny. It was so perfect. Everybody was acting like Scotty was acting like Scotty. I thought Chekhov was was great, being very almost nonchalant with everything. Uh, and uh, obviously Kirk, you know, William Shatner delivered the goods, at least in that part. Um, it, it was just it was just awesome. Gener- you know, that that first 20 minutes of Generations is so good. Uh, the scene, the, the following scene, which ends up where, um, you know, and, and Kirk dies there. And let me tell you, the way Kirk dies in that, would have been perfect if they just left it there. And I, I mean, they could have done it. I, I really think they could have gotten away with it and then just have like, have the relevance of like, say the Nexus, which is sort of the, the, you know, the basis of that movie, um, you know, have the relevance of the Nexus kind of just, just take place in the future. You don't have to bring Kirk back at all. Just have Kirk die right there. Also, I want to point out in that first 20 minutes, there was originally a deleted scene 
that was largely filmed on one of the on the collector's edition of the DVD. I don't know about it on the Blu-ray, uh, but on the collector's edition of the DVD, you can see the part of the deleted scene where Kirk, this is old Kirk, okay, does a orbital sky jump on Earth, and. You know, a lot of people, this is something that annoys me. A lot of people say that J.J. Abrams did something really original and really exciting when he did the orbital sky jump um, with the 2009 Star Trek. No, he didn't. Star Trek, the idea of orbital sky jumps, of jumping from starships and whatever else, was already, you know, that was a Star Trek idea for 20 years. Okay, (laughs) before, you know, or, well, 15, before... um, you know, before J.J. Abrams even thought about it. So that was already a part of it. You know, gener- I mean, that would have been cool to see. That would have been a great way to open the film. That would have been very exciting. Uh, and sadly, it didn't happen. So, uh, you know, but but anyway, getting on with Generations, the scene after the 20 minutes were, you know, after Kirk dies, uh, was really cool where Worf is, you know, they're on the holodeck, they're on that old, uh, you know, British naval ship, um, and they get, uh, you know, Worf becomes lieutenant commander and all that. That was really well done. That was a fun moment. Um, and that felt very movie-like, even though, again, I don't require a Star Trek movie to be good to, to feel like it's, you know, something more like a movie than it's more like an episode. Um, that was good. But then, I don't know, things, I don't, it just it, it just doesn't feel right. And, and, and a, lot of, a lot of the plot points that happen weren't really necessary in this film. Like, it was great to have Lursa and Bator back and to finally, you know, put an end to that storyline. That was cool. Um, but... Like, so the Enterprise-D gets destroyed. And folks, look, some of these movies have been out for 40 years. Like, if you haven't seen them already, how, how could you possibly expect people not to spoil it for you? That's fucking ridiculous. Okay, but the Enterprise-D gets destroyed in, in generations. And it really didn't need to. Like, that was, that was one of the big hooks um, of this movie is that this was going to happen. This is one of the things I think that the, the production team was expecting to put it over the top and to make, you know, and to have people be really excited about it. But it didn't need to happen. You know, I talk about that logical consistency that generally exists within Star Trek. Like, so the Enterprise D gets destroyed because the warp core is going to breach. There's a coolant leak or whatever. And so they can't eject the core. Uh, and, and so, you know, they, they just, they do a saucer separation, which it was nice for the Enterprise D to finally do a saucer separation. It had been years since it had done it the last time, uh, that being best of both worlds and, uh, you know, season, uh, season four there, part two. Um, that was nice, but like they, they could have come up with a better reason. It just, it, everybody, I think everybody, I remember I was a kid at the time, of course, I was like 13 cause that came out in 94 or 95. And I just remember everybody, like, you know, a lot of my other kind of, you know, geeky Star Trek friends and, you know, just saying it's like, yeah, why couldn't they eject the core? Why couldn't they beam out the core? Like, like it, it doesn't make any sense that there's so many times where it seems so possible that you can eject the core that the one time that you can't, it, it just, it was too, too convenient and it didn't make any sense. Um, so, you know, that, that didn't fit. Kirk coming back, it seemed forced having Kirk come back. I, and the way he died, like, yeah, that's great. He saved, uh, I mean, what's, you know, he saved a planet and blah, blah, blah. Um, I mean, and you know, Malcolm McDowell did a great job as Soren, but you didn't really get into like Soren's history. Of course, Star Trek always has, or a lot of times has that problem to where though there's cases and we'll cover them in this, uh, you know, there's cases where, yeah, it does a better job, um, of, of exploring villains. This was not a case where a villain was explored very well. And so I didn't really think that Soren deserved the honor of being the person that led to Kirk's death. Uh, Kirk's death in the first 15, 20 minutes of this movie 
was fine and dandy. They they could have left it at that, like like I said, and and just you know went into like just showing the ominous how ominous the nexus is, say, because this is what killed Captain Kirk. You know that that would have been enough. You didn't have to bring Kirk back. Not to say, please, any screen time you can give William Shatner, I'm happy for it. And there were some funny moments between, uh, you know, uh, Kirk and Picard. Like, I love the point where he says, you know, sounds like fun. You know, where, where he's, you know, Picard saying to him, come back with me, make a difference again. You know, and, and, he, and Kirk says, uh, he, like, he says, you know, if Spock were here, he'd say I was an illogical human being for even wanting to try this. But he's like, but sounds like fun. You know, that was a great line. There, there was, I mean, there's, there's good moments in generations. But again, there's so much that just doesn't seem to like make sense or that seem to get forced in. And the two tragic moments of the movie that the whole movie was really building up to was Kirk dying and the Enterprise D getting destroyed. And both reasons sucked, in my opinion. It's fine. I move on. It's still a good movie, you know, overall. But I just thought that those those two reasons, if they put in better reasons, it would have been a much better movie. And if they kept the orbital jump uh, deleted scene in the beginning, I think that also would have, uh, seriously, it would have helped out a lot. uh, Because it would have explored more of like Kirk's, you know, why is he getting back into Starfleet? What's going on in his life and all that? It, It would have added to that, I think. So anyway, that's Generations. Um, you know, another interesting thing is that Generations, well, another thing that kind of counts against it, uh, Dennis McCarthy, who scored a good chunk of Star Trek The Next Generation, the, the TV series, who's a fine composer, and, you know, and as somebody that, that the very amateurishly composes music myself, you know, I can really respect, you know, what it takes to get to that level. So I'm, I don't mean to insult him. But the score for, uh, for Generations is probably the weakest of any of the movies. Like if we were ranking Star Trek scores as in Star Trek soundtracks, um, this would definitely be at the bottom of the list. Uh, easy. And it's, I don't mean to knock Dennis McCarthy. It just didn't have the flair. Like it was so refreshing when we ended up with Star Trek First Contact, you know, just a few years later. And Jerry Goldsmith comes back and he opens up the movie, not with the Next Generation theme, not with any theme you recognize, something totally new, but so fucking epic. You know, and he brings back uh, uh, that, that, that oh, I forget the name of the, the instrument he made for the motion, for Star Trek, the motion picture, where it makes that like that, that echoey, like, uh, uh, I don't know, mechanical sound that he used for the Borg, which is originally used for V'ger in Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah, the, the score just wasn't there. And in fact, I kind of wonder when uh, I, I think the, if I'm not mistaken, so I can't remember if the, if the, the generation score came out on Varice Bande or if it came out on GMP Crescendo, as far as which company released it. But I think it was Crescendo. And they released it with the, like the last, it was a 30 track release or so. And the last half of the soundtrack was actually all sound effects, um, which I've actually used on Sovereign Tech, uh, from, you know, from the movie or from the next generation in general. Uh, And this used to be a popular thing to release on CD was, you know, sound effects CDs. In fact, there's one for the original series of Star Trek that was just released completely on its own. Uh, And I'm pretty sure Crescendo released that one. Um, So anyway, I, I, I sort of feel like they knew that the soundtrack wasn't that special. No, I, please, I don't mean to insult Dennis McCarthy. He's, he's done great work. Um, though I do agree, I think Star Trek was better off by having, um, you know, Jay Chataway do a lot of the work for it. I mean, McCarthy did great work on DS9, all that. I, I, please, I'm not knocking it. 
but it just wasn't there, you know? And so I think, I think they kind of knew that and they're like, well, we're going to need to add in something extra. And so with the generation soundtrack, you know, they put in all these extra sounds, uh, sound effects to give you, you know, real value for it. And kudos to Crescendo for doing that. Or if it was Varisa Rabande, I, you know, I, I don't remember, but, um, anyway, so generations number 13, uh, it's, it's definitely better than nemesis because not, you know, there's a lot of characters at the very least that don't feel out of place. Uh, is, or, you know, that their acting is, is spot on. Um, in fact, I'll tell you, <laughs> there's a funny story with Generations that I'll, I'll share with you quick. Um, I saw, this is one of the first Star Trek conventions I ever went to when I was, uh, I mean, well, this is when Generations came out, actually. Um, it was before Voyager, because I remember they talked about the news of what was happening with Voyager. They talked about how the, the first episode of Voyager um, uh, the Caretaker was going to cost $29 million, which was unheard of at the time, by the way. Uh, that was a movie budget back at that time. And for some movies today, it still is. Um, you know, so I, I, was, I was at my, one of my first conventions in Utica, New York, and it was at the Stanley Theater, and it was uh, Walter Koenig. And it wasn't my first convention. My first convention was in Syracuse with uh, Marina Sirtis. Yeah, baby. Uh, anyway. <clears throat> um, so Walter Koenig was talking about his experience on the set of Star Trek Generations because he was in the first 20 minutes. And, uh, and there was a point where, you know, at the time, if you read the, um, if you read the, the, the autobiographies, they're not really autobiographies, they're ghostwritten, but the autobiographies by William Shatner, or if you read the biographies of... The other cast members, like uh, Sulu's To the Stars and Uhura wrote one and, you know, all this different stuff. Everybody got their shot at it. They all kind of talk about, and Shatner tries to downplay it in his books, but in the other books, they all, they all kind of talk about how Shatner was apparently, you know, he really injected, um, you know, how he wanted things to be on, on the set or with a script or something like that. In fact, that caused a huge rift with Harlan Ellison. That's a whole other story that had to do with City on the Edge of Forever and whatever. Um, and so I'm listening, you know, I'm sitting down in, in, at the Stanley Theater at this convention and Walter Koenig is talking and he talks about how um, he said that, that, you know, he says, Bill was, he calls him Bill. He says, Bill Shatner was always, you know, telling us how to act and all this stuff. And Bill came up to me and he says, you know, maybe you could, uh, you know, maybe laugh a little more like this. And, and he said, for the first time in my career, I turned to Bill Shatner. This is Walter Koenig saying it. And I said to him, no. <laughs> and he said, and Bill just went, put his hands up and said, okay, okay. And walked away. <laughs> and it was such a great story. I maybe had to be there to get it, but I thought it was really cool, uh, you know, for, for, uh, for Walter, you know, to really kind of stick up for himself and whatever. And of course, at the time, Walter Koenig was, uh, you know, having a, a fair run as a recurring guest on Babylon 5, my, you know, my favorite television show. Uh, as Alfred Bester, which is great. So when he talked about that a little bit too, but anyway, so generations was a good time and, and obviously everybody felt comfortable. And I imagine, you know, Walter's confidence in, in playing the part and saying no to Bill Shatner probably allowed for that, 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 you know, that very genuine delivery of Chekhov, um, in that movie. So, yeah, so I'll give generations, you know, number 13, largely because of that, that first 20 minutes was just so goddamn good, um, of that movie. Like it was just, it was perfect you know, just super solid Star Trek. It was great. And wow, we're 40 minutes in. 
<laughs> and I'm only on, I'm only like three in. <laughs> oh shit. Well, these other ones uh, should go by quite a bit faster uh, because these are ones that largely I, I don't necessarily have so much of a problem with. Let's go to number 12. And now we're going to get into the Kelvin timeline. We're going to get into the Abrams movies to some degree. Uh, and this is Star Trek Into Darkness. Now I understand a lot of people have problems with the plot holes in the movie, uh, blah, 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 blah. I get that. You know, I, it didn't matter to me because what was delivered, what was shown was so good. And what was so beautiful about it was this was the rare time that you really got to. And, and, you know, one of the other rare times would actually have been Star Trek II: the wrath of Khan, which is where Khan originally appears because Star Trek into darkness, of course, is a rehash of the wrath of Khan. Um, you know, we really got to get into, and we actually got to feel bad for the villain. Like you really end up kind of liking Khan in this, which is great because in Space Seed, you really end up like, you know, which is the original from the original series, you know, back in the 60s, the episode where Khan first appears. You personally, I really liked Khan. <laughs> okay. Like I thought, and I think Kirk liked Khan. There was, there was, in fact, they even mentioned in the episode in Space Seed where there's this grudging respect. Um, and you got that again in Into Darkness. And I thought that was so good the way they delivered that. Um, and a lot of the styles, you know, actually, I really liked uh, Carol Marcus being in it. I thought Alicia Eve, I believe that's the actress who played her. She was great. I, uh, one of the points I put against Star Trek Beyond, the most recent film, is that she wasn't in it. I thought that sucked. Simon Pegg recently explained why. He just said they, they just couldn't fit it in. Uh, personally, I would have loved if she was there because it would have made the, the Enterprise Bridge less of a sausage fest again. Um, but whatever. So, but she was great. Carol Marcus was great in it. Um, uh, uh, Oh, hell, his name's escaping me now. The guy that played Admiral Marcus, uh, Peter Weller. He was, he was great. I love that actor. Best known, of course, for playing Robocop, but he also did a, a great little season with a show called Odyssey 5 that I really enjoyed that was on Showtime a, a while back as a science fiction show. You should check that out if you haven't. Um, but he was great as Admiral Marcus. Uh, the, bringing in Section 31, you know, and a lot of the references to stuff that happened in Enterprise. In fact, they even showed the NX-01 Enterprise uh, in it was was great. They showed a model of it anyway. Um, and there was some awesome, awesome... The opening to that was really cool on the planet Nibiru, kind of, uh, you know, laying out an ancient astronaut hypothesis or ancient astronaut theory uh, situation. In fact, the, 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 plan, the name of that planet, Nibiru, is referenced to what Zechariah Sitchin says was where the Anunnaki came from, who are the people that seeded, uh, uh, you know, who advanced humanity on Earth and referenced by the Sumerians and all this. It's a whole other topic. So I thought all that was really cool. Bringing in the Section 31 stuff, finally bringing in the Dreadnought. I thought this was really cool. Um, in fact, something that, that I'll give Nemesis points for was that they had, was the Romulan, the Scorpion or Scorpio? I think it was Scorpion uh, starfighters, like fighter ships. You know, they were smaller than shuttles and they were designed for attack ships. I thought that was cool to finally see in Star Trek. You got, you, you had hints of that. Like there was a great PlayStation game, PlayStation 1 uh, game called Star Trek Invasion, which had the, the Griffin class and the Typhon class. Uh, but the Griffin class was like this, uh, you know, was this Starfleet starfighter sort of thing. I know that with Nova Squadron, they, they mentioned these sort of things before. But like, this is the first time you really had a starfighter of sorts. Um, it was cool to see that in Nemesis. And it was cool. And, and also to see the Dreadnought, which was the vengeance that Admiral Marcus is controlling in, um, you know, in uh, Into Darkness. I thought including all that stuff, bringing in all those different kind of elements and possibilities in the Star Trek was really, really cool. And in fact, both of those, the Starfighter idea, which was from Nemesis, not that wasn't really in, um, 
in Into Darkness, but the Vengeance was, which is the Dreadnought class. Those are both very old ideas from like 40 years ago by Diane Duane. Uh, she wrote the books uh, Battle Stations, and there was a sequel to that where she introduced the, you know, the Dreadnought class. Of course, it was the Dreadnought class was just a Constitution class with like a third nacelle on it and a little bit bigger and maybe an extra deflector dish and all this. Um, but to, to see it kind of realized and implemented, because this was just an idea out of fandom, it was nothing that was ever officially laid out, I thought was great. That was, a, that was really cool to include so much and bring so much more of, you know, Star Trek fandom and, the uni- and you know, kind of the extended universe, I guess you could say, you know, into the fold. I thought that was really, really slick. Um, I like the fact that Khan did not die. At the end of this one, I think that's great because that means the character can come back and that you can, I mean, there's so many stories you can do around, you know, the, the idea of the, you know, the, the, the genetically engineered or the genetically enhanced humans and all that, uh, which Enterprise, the show, Star Trek Enterprise kind of, you know, waded into a little bit with the Klingons um, and all this. I mean, just, yeah, I, I really, Into Darkness, the, the positives far outweigh the negatives. In fact, speaking of the Klingons, the way the Klingons are depicted in this, I thought was so badass. Like the, the D4 Bird of Praise were, I have a little, I actually have a little model one that I keep on my desk uh, because I, I just think it looks so cool. Like it, it looks more than a bird. It looks like a wasp where like the back engine can, can even sort of curl up and everything. That was really awesome. And the Klingons, you know, could, um, they could repel down from the birds of prey from the D4s. Just awesome. I, I, I really, really liked it. There was a lot of great style in Into Darkness. So I appreciated that. And the take that they did on, um, you know, on Khan was really good. But now here's the problem. Here's where maybe we're into darkness, kind of what causes it to rank a little lower with me is a narrative outside of the movie, actually. And that is, is that a lot of people expected Benedict Cumberbatch, his character originally called John Harrison. And in the movie is originally John Harrison. Then you find out he's Khan. A lot of people were saying that's Khan. And J.J. Abrams came out in no uncertain terms and said, no, it's not Khan. He lied. He straight up lied. Now, I get it. What else are you going to say when somebody asks you that question? You know, what can you do? You you don't want to reveal your big hook and all that stuff, right? I get that. But here's the thing is that he, more than anybody else, I think, set the precedent from now on that whenever, and not just in Star Trek, this is true for Star Wars, this is true for all kinds of things, who are raised parents and all this stuff, right? you know, with Star Wars, uh, in any other movie, anytime you ask a director, you know, straight to their face, is this, this character or something like that? Or is this the resolution to sentence to such and so mystery? They're going to tell, you no, and now you don't know if you can believe them. You can't take them at face value anymore. And that sucks like that. That really sucks because fans have a good time figuring these sorts of things out. You know, these little hints inside of either trailers or even full on movies. And to not, you know, to, to, to just lie to them just feels so wrong. I, again, I understand why they do it, but it really does feel shitty. Like, I, I don't like it. You know, I, I took, I was like, okay, J.J. Abrams says it's not Khan. I still kind of think it is, but fine, I'll say it. It's not Khan. It's this guy, John Harrison. Cool, let's move on. It didn't make sense that he was white anyway, which I thought that was dumb too, but... Uh, again, the positives of, of Into Darkness outweigh the negatives. But but that Into Darkness really should go down in history as the moment when you will never, when you absolutely are certain that you can never believe the production teams as a fan. You just cannot. 
no matter what they say, no matter how much they denounce it. I mean, you know, it's like the Star Wars thing. Everybody's saying, oh, Snoke is, uh, and I still subscribe to this, that Snoke is, um, uh, you know, is, is Darth Plagueis. That gets mentioned in episode three of Star Wars, right? I still believe that. I don't care who says it's not true because what else are they going to say? You know, and, and in fact, honestly, you know, Force, The Force Awakens is a J.J. Abrams movie. Of course he'll fucking lie about it. Maybe, in fact, maybe the fact that he hasn't necessarily commented on it, maybe he hasn't, I don't know about it. Maybe the fact that he hasn't commented on it is him saying, look, I'm tired of lying to these people. You're going to have to hire other people to lie to their asses off about this. So anyway, my point being is that you just, whenever somebody on the production team wants to debunk something now, thanks to Star Trek Into Darkness, you can, I mean, you could take it with a grain of salt because yeah, whatever. J.J. Abrams said he wasn't con either. You know, that, that, that Cumberbatch's character wasn't con. Um, so that, that's really what that movie's going to go down in history for. So anyway, number, that was number 12, Star Trek Into Darkness. Let's go to number 11. And you're, you will not, you, maybe you'll guess what this one is but you probably won't <laughs> galaxy quest. <laughs> now, before you think that's a cheat and you say it's not a star Trek movie, you're fucking kidding me. That is, that is a star Trek movie. In fact, some people call it the greatest star Trek movie of all time. And I, I wouldn't argue that I, I totally accept that answer. Uh, galaxy quest, of course, with, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Sigourney Weaver, you know, and Tim, I mean, it was just, you know, it was based around Star Trek and they just, you know, kind of renamed everything. Right. And it was just a parody of what would happen if, you know, Captain Kirk and, you know, but in this case being played by Tim Allen, right. And it not being Captain Kirk and all this, what would happen if that, you know, if, if that crew had to deal with the real deal and all this stuff and it was just perfect. And there are moments with galaxy quest where I get total goosebumps where, you know, in fact, I forgot about this because I think I said the other day on Sex and Science Hour, I said that I can remember the three movies where I cried at and that was Star Trek Beyond, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and, uh, and, and Titanic, I remember crying at. No, I cried at Galaxy Quest. When, when Tim Allen's character, you know, is, or, you know, when, Tim, when the actor there, J- Jason Nesmith, right, is saying to to uh, Mathazar was that his name Mathazar the leader of the of the the aliens of the the, the Thermians when he's explained to him how acting works and how everything was on a stage and how none of none of Galaxy Quest was real and all this stuff and like when Mathazar says but why I, I have goosebumps right now like because I God damn it I remember that. I remember that feeling where I was like, when you find out that, you know, like, I mean, you know, you're a kid. Like, I, I, I want to say I knew since I was like six or seven that Captain Kirk wasn't real. I mean, and I probably knew it even before then. But like when you really realize that William Shatner also is not Captain Kirk, like that, that when nothing, that that character is just totally written and that person does not really exist. When you realize that. I mean, that is heart-wrenching, no matter what age. In fact, I've talked about this before on Sovereign Tech. There's a great, there's a really great, uh, it was, I think it was Shatner's second or third album. He's had so many, but it was the album Has Been. And the last track on that, I think it's track 13, there's a song called Real that he does with Brad Paisley. Kind of a country song, but it, it works. It's Shatner, so it works. And the whole point of the song is him saying, like the chorus of the song is, while there's a part of me up there on that screen, um, 
you know, I am so much more. I wish I knew the things you think I do. I would change this world for sure. Um, sorry to disappoint you, but I'm real. Like that, that's kind of the lyrics of the song. And it's him, you know, addressing this thing is that, look, I'm not Captain Kirk. And he talked about that in the movie Free Enterprise, too. Boy, if, if, if there's a Star Trek movie, that actually, that should get counted. Free Enterprise is one of them, but that, that, I'll save that for another time. You, you should watch the movie Free Enterprise if you've never seen it. Great romantic comedy made by real Star Trek fans. Um, anyway, I, God damn, like, I, I so feel that. And I so understand that. And like the excitement that the, there's the point in Galaxy Quest where the fan, the kid, he says, uh, like when he, when he finds out, you know, or, or Jason Nesmith, you know, says, it's all real, you know, and, and the kid just goes, I knew it. I think it's Billy or something. He's like, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> you know, and like so many of us, especially as teenagers, you know, like, or, or a little younger, I, we would have died to just find out that it was all real. You know, because it is so fully realized. I mean, I don't, you know, understand. I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't have an issue with reality or anything. But, God damn it, I wish. You know, <laughs> to some degree. I, I mean, we, you know, I'm not getting into the philosophical aspects of Starfleet and all that stuff. That, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but, yeah, man, there's the, the feels, as they say, in Galaxy Quest. It just, it just puts it over the top. Definitely number 11 on this list. Uh, it's just shy of breaking into the top 10, but I feel like that'd be a little bit of a cheat. Uh, so, so, such a great film. And it is absolutely a Star Trek film, no matter who you ask. It, it really is. I know technically it's not. And Netflix might be making that Galaxy Quest show, even though they might not be now. Uh, I really wish they would. Um, man. Good shit. So anyway, all right, let's get into the top 10. Here we are. We're at, we're at the top 10. And at the bottom of the top 10 is the 2009 Star Trek. Um, that is number 10 on this list. Uh, yeah, I didn't need Star Trek to be reinvigorated. I know that is kind of the billing is that, and a lot of people get excited about it because, oh, it reinvigorated it and all that. And, you know, it made Star Trek exciting and all that and got Star Trek out to the masses. I'm glad, I will say this, I'm glad that the 2009 Star Trek got kids into Star Trek again. And it really did with the marketing and all that stuff. I'm more happy about the marketing, about the, the toys and all of this that came out of the 2009 Star Trek than I am anything else about the film. The film's great. The film's very, very good. I'm, I'm not knocking that at all. Uh, but it's interesting that, uh, well, I, I sympathize with people that it's not so intellectual Star Trek. I agree, it's not. Um, it also has other failings. The, the character of Nero, you really don't, I mean, when you read, when you read the, the previous, the prequel comic to the 2009 Star Trek, you understand where Nero's coming from. He lost his wife, he lost Romulus, blah, blah, blah. And you get hints of that in the movie and all that, but you don't really like get enough um, of what is, you know, of, of why they're doing what they're doing. You don't get enough of the villain. Star Trek's terrible about that a lot of times. So that, that, you know, I don't really want to hold that as points against it. Um, but it would have been appreciated. Anyway, you know, so much about this movie was very, very cool. Uh, I, you know, I, I really enjoyed seeing Orion women again. One of the best things, in my opinion, about the Kelvin timeline movies is that you get Orions. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're an enterprise. That was great. But it's so great to get Orions, you know, Orion women and Orion whatever in it. Uh, I think that's really cool. Uh, so and, and the guy that played Pike was was great. Uh, he did a phenomenal job. Um, it was just, it, 
the real winner here, though, for me, that actually, that's amazing about the 2009 Star Trek. Yes, it did reinvigorate Star Trek. There, there, there is some truth to that. Like I said, at least with the kids. The movie may not have done it so much as, as everything else did. But Michael Gaicano, and I don't know, maybe I'm pronouncing mispronouncing his name, his last name. Maybe it's Gaicino or something. But Michael Gaicano is the greatest, you know, outside of the guys that have been around forever, as far as the new blood of, of uh, composers. He is the man. Like, he does such great fucking work. He did great work with Speed Racer. Uh, he, he, I mean, every movie he scored, the score is phenomenal. And this is no small feat for you, for Michael Gaicano, to jump in on the original series of Star Trek and to put in new themes, in fact, themes that are more identifiable and more hummable than Alexander Courage's original, you know, I mean, that is no small feat. And he pulled it off. The soundtrack for the Kelvin timeline movies alone are the the soundtracks are great. Into Darkness soundtrack was great. Also Michael Gaicano beyond soundtrack was great. Also Gaicano. And of course the 2009 Star Trek is what, you know, kicked it all off. I could listen to that soundtrack over and over again. It was phenomenal. Uh, they, They really, really did great work. Now, there's some negatives to this. Like one thing that I really agree with a lot of the more, I guess you could say the prime timeline purists is that engineering aboard the enterprise was just stupid. Like that, that was ridiculous that all these pipes and everything. I mean, it looked like a steamship that was just asinine, uh, almost unforgivable. And it definitely really, you know, puts this way down on the list. I mean, it was just Dumb, And it got proven how dumb it is because when you watch, in fact, I wonder if they're going to fix this now that we have, uh, you know, spoiler alert. Now we're going to get into some spoiler territory because we're talking about Star Trek Beyond. So deal with it. Um, in Star Trek Beyond, you know, now we have the NCC 1701A for the Kelvin timeline, not the one that we know and love, you know, from Star Trek 4 and so on. Um Maybe they're going to fix engineering, but the stupidity of that engineering design, I think, got shown in that when you see uh, the, the, the USS Franklin, which is the, the first Warp 4 star, you know, ship, Earth ship, uh, that looks kind of like the NX class from Enterprise, uh, but it's Starship class anyway. The Franklin, when you see like engineering and all that stuff in there and, and you see all that various, I mean, like there's no sign of that design language for, for engineering inside of the Franklin. And I was like, exactly, because you know how dumb that was. Uh, so, so the, you know, I could really take points off as to why, you know, it, like the, that's so bad. I know a lot of people put Star Trek 2009. Some people put that like that in their number two slot. I just can't agree because, I mean, some of this stuff just really missed the ball. But it was lots of action. The thing that puts it over the top, the thing that really makes it so great, I thought, was the destruction of Vulcan. Fucking brilliant idea. I would have never thought of doing that. That was genius. And having the Vulcans be this rare species and all this stuff, they really turned the Vulcans into the, you know, they, not that, not that this is a new thing. This was being done, you know, ever since the Nimoy days, ever since Leonard Nimoy took on, you know, the mantle of Spock. Um, but they really made the Vulcans into the Jews. Uh, and, and that's, that's a powerful story, you know, to tell with, with, uh, you know, with, the, with all the culture that goes with it, you know, the cultural identity being held by elders and our planet's gone. There's only 10,000 of us left and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I mean, like that, that was, that was a brilliant, brilliant idea. Uh, and people like, 
I get it. I understand the complaints why people don't accept the Kelvin timeline, but you got to admit that idea was brilliant. Like that was so good. And also, you know, the other great thing about the 2009 Star Trek is that, yeah, it's a reboot, but it's a reboot that still allowed its prime timeline to exist, admitted that admits that it exists uh, and, and was very respectful to that timeline. Um, and so kudos to, to the 2009 Star Trek for that alone. Now, let's get into to number nine. Uh, that was number 10, now for number nine. And number nine is Star Trek Beyond, uh, you know, one of the sequels to the 2009 Star Trek. And, uh, and, and this is another case where the amount, what made this movie so great, I already reviewed this. If you listen to episode 185 of, um, uh, of Sovereign Tech, you can hear my review for, for, uh, for Star Trek Beyond. So I won't spend a whole lot of time on it here. But the amount of reverence for the prime timeline for all of Star Trek that came before it was just amazing. And that was so, that was so, so great uh, to see. Like when, again, spoiler alert, when uh, Spock, you know, because Ambassador Spock dies in it, Leonard Nimoy's character dies, and we're left with Zachary Quinto Spock. And he gets, you know, Ambassador Spock's possessions, you know, Nimoy Spock's possessions. And in that is a picture of the original crew, you know, with Shatner, with Michelle Nichols, James Doohan, you know, George Takei and, and Walter Koenig and all that. When he sees that picture, like I said, I teared up. Like I, I couldn't hold it back. That was so beautiful. But you, you're never going to see a reboot. Any, I don't think you're ever going to see any other reboot really deliver that much respect for its source material. That was wonderful. Uh, Star Trek Beyond, you know, the main highlights for me, uh, I enjoyed, you know, I, I, I even thought the Beastie Boys stuff, all that was pretty cool. The York, seeing the Yorktown, this is another case where like when, when I really love, when Star Trek really shines for me is when it fully realizes the 24th century, or in this case is the, or, you know, the, yeah, this would have been the 23rd century, right? Uh, with, um, you know, with Kirk. When they fully realized that stuff, when they were showing off the Yorktown, even the end sequences with the Yorktown, that was great. Uh, I, I really, really enjoyed that. Um, I thought that, the, you know, the Franklin, the USS Franklin, seeing the Warp 4 ship, I thought that was so cool. That was, that was really, really nice. And in fact, I like that the, the Franklin had, and this kind of lends itself to it, you know, being a somewhat different design language than anything else uh, and why you didn't hear about it before, is it had manual controls. It had the, st- you know, dual stick controls. I thought that was really cool, uh, which you did see in Star Trek Insurrection. You know, uh, that, that was one of the best moments in Insurrection when Riker says, you know, computer manual controls, and then a giant joystick comes up from the center of the bridge. That, that was fucking great. Um, so, so that was cool. Star Trek Beyond just it had all the right moves. Um, the, the score was great, like I said. The acting was, was perfectly fine. Um, the, the uniforms, I love the fact that we still have the short skirt uniforms. I was a little worried that they weren't going to be there. They're very important to me, but they're there. <laughs> Yoo-hoo! <laughs> um, yeah, just, just lots of great stuff in that. If you listen to episode 185, if you want to hear more of my review of Star Trek Beyond. Um, I just, I thought it was really good. Uh, now they are, like I said, they are going to make a, apparently we are getting a fourth movie and it's going to be Chris Hemsworth in that. Now I want to touch on that just for a second in how I think this might happen is that there might be a time travel thing, or maybe like I was mentioning with the 2009 Star Trek, there is a time frame where Nero and his Romulan, his future Romulan crew are just hanging out in this 23rd century. And on a quasi-Borg-modified ship, if I remember correctly. Now, there's a chance that they somehow, you know, that, that maybe George Kirk got assimilated. Um, and it's a nice lead-in because a lot of Star Trek Beyond is all about Kirk dealing with daddy issues, more or less. 
uh, you know, in trying to find his place in the universe and everything. Um, so I think that, or I, I see the potential that there could be a Borg situation where George Kirk is a part of it. In fact, uh, one of the things that solved, you know, I was talking about generations earlier. One of the things that solved generations for me and that, that allows it to, to be kept with a good taste in my mouth is there are these books, they're not canon, but there's a, there's a book series called, called unofficially the Shatner verse, because it's all the books written by, by William Shatner. Of course, technically they're written by Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens, but you know, it's Shatner's ideas and all this and his names on it. So in the Shatner verse, there's a book called the return. And in that it takes place right after Star Trek generations and Kirk's body gets taken by the Borg. Um, it's a great moment because Spock is there grieving over his, uh, you know, over, over Kirk's stone little grave there that, that Picard puts him in at the end of generations. Um, and I wonder, and what, what ends up happening is that the Borg use Kirk as a weapon to try and destroy the Federation. What would be interesting is if, because I, I said this to Stephanie when we were leaving Star Trek Beyond, I said what they really need to do, they need to do a Borg movie with this crew. It's like, that would be amazing with this crew and with this budget. <laughs> okay. Uh, even though, you know, Star Trek Beyond's not doing very well, uh, at least domestically, um, unfortunately. It looks like it's going to be doing fine otherwise, um, you know, internationally. But, uh, you know, hopefully they'll get an all right budget and they can do like a really great Borg film. And if they brought in George Kirk, kind of with that idea of him being sort of a either a drone or, or some kind of sleeper agent of sorts, that could get really interesting. I, I could see that. So I'm just, I'm putting that out there. I haven't read anybody else talk about that. But I mean, you know, understand in the 2009 Star Trek, you see uh, um, the Kelvin, the USS Kelvin, which is what the Kelvin timeline is, is named after, crash, which is what George Kirk is on. He crashes it into Nero's ship. Maybe he survived that crash. I mean, it looks like he doesn't, but, you know, it very much looks like he doesn't, but hey, who knows? So, yeah, so anyway, maybe that's what the fourth movie is going to be. We'll see. And that when that time comes around, maybe I'll revisit uh, this list of best, you know, ranking of Star Trek films. Um, so Star Trek Beyond is at number nine. Again, also, I love the fact that Star Trek Beyond uh, admitted that there was sex. That was a great thing. You know, that's something I forgot to mention with Into Darkness. Into Darkness was so good. One of the things I loved about it was that it showed Kirk having a threesome. That was badass. Star Trek uh, Beyond, more sex and more Orion women fucking great. <laughs> uh, so let's go to number eight. Number eight. This one might be controversial, why people think this is so high up. And that is The Final Frontier. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, back when these movies still had numbers. Um, this was directed by Shatner himself. Uh, this is a movie that has so many great little moments on it, including the, the camping scene where Kirk famously says, I always know I die alone. Uh, you know, and they sing row, row, row your boat, all that stuff. That was really good. Uh, there's, there's parts of it that, that seem to, you know, they don't really like fit. They don't flow very well. I understand that, but Kirk versus God. And that's exactly what you get at the end of this movie. You know, Kirk saying, what does God need with the starship was revolutionary to me, especially as a kid. It's like, yeah, what does God need with anything? <laughs> you know, it really got me thinking as a kid. Uh, fantastic. Like, I, I really enjoy this movie. Uhura doing her little sexy dance. I even enjoyed that. Um, there, there was a lot, in my opinion, to, to like about this film. Uh, I, I thought, and, and, you know, the Enterprise A, seeing that uh, was really cool. I mean, there's just lots of cool stuff in it. I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, even the idea that Planet of Peace and all that with the, was it Azibur? 
was it was as no as was in star trek six that was the klingon daughter there anyway the, the you know the romulan woman and 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 david warner was a little weak in this even though he does great in star trek six when he plays chancellor gorkin that's what got me confused um but it was cool. And even, you know, Spock saving Kirk with the, the bird of prey at the end. And, uh, and you know, <laughs> Kirk wanting to hug him. And then Spock says, Captain, please. Not in front of the Klingons. <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot of great moments in this movie. Uh, it ranks low. You know, as far as the, the original series of films, yeah, it's the worst of the bunch. Uh, but it's still very good. Again, it's still Star Trek. You still get a lot of these great Kirk, Spock, McCoy moments, and even Scotty gets in some good action there. And uh, the center of the universe and Shakari and all that was a little odd, but, you know, overall, again, like I said, a very cool film. You got to see, in fact, you may even see, uh, to some degree, Makos um, in, you know, there, there's the running theory right now that the uh, the troops, because they, they do this, what was it, an, uh, Navindra three or, or Nimbra three, whatever the, the planet, the, the planet of peace, right. Uh, gets attacked by Cybok, which is Spock's brother, uh, an emotional Vulcan, which it was only a matter of time before we saw that outside of the Romulans. Um, when they do the kind of the, the, you know, sort of the ground rescue mission, there's guys in different color uniforms and some people theorize that those are Makos. So cool. You know, that, that, that makes sense. Makos being the military arm, uh, I'm not saying it's cool as in that's what I like personally in my life. I'm just saying within the Star Trek paradigm, of course. I hope people will understand and respect that. Um, uh, you know, if those are Makos, hey, awesome. You know, retroactively, I like that sort of kind of thing where you retroactively say that, oh, yeah, no, this is canon. This is how this is. Um, so Star Trek V is a movie of moments. And so it gets a number, it gets an eight ranking, or, you know, ranks a number eight. Uh, and, and there's so many great lines that, you know, it's so quotable. I, like, fuck. The whole sequence when Cybok is putting them, you know, is is trying to convince, he's trying to take away their pain. That's what he does with everybody, right? He uses his Vulcan powers to take away people's pain or something. And he works with Spock and he works on McCoy. Like McCoy's dad is dying and, you know, it ends up there was a cure a month later that could have saved him. And, you know, and, and he takes away McCoy's pain. But then he goes to take away Kirk's pain. And Kirk just gives this epic fucking speech, you know, where he's like, what are you trying to say? It's like, what do you mean get rid of my pain? It's like, what are you saying? I should have turned left when I should have turned right. It's like, no, this is what makes us who we are. I need my pain. Man, epic, fucking epic. It's <laughs> such a great Kirk moment. I just love that. It's like, you don't need to take away my pain. I need my pain. Oh, man. You know, which, I mean, just... You know, the idea of dealing with traumas is certainly very important and kind of letting go, you know, and, and, and working them out and all that stuff, sure. But, you know, they are, you, you, there is an integration process, and I think Kirk is speaking for that integration process. And, oh, it's so good. I, I, I get it why people don't like Star Trek V. And there were budget issues, like a lot of, and, you know, Kirk said, or Shatner, William Shatner says that when he was directing the film, which I thought his direction was fine. Um, but when he was directing the film, they kept like changing everything out from underneath him. Like the, the rock, there was supposed to be a rock monster. It didn't happen. Like, you know, the way Shaka Ryu was supposed to look was supposed to be very different. And he, he ran into a bunch of different production problems. So, you know, respect to him for that. But, you know, there's so many great moments in that movie that uh, I can't hate that. I don't think it sucks. I don't, you know, maybe you're already realizing it. Or you'll, maybe you'll realize it more as we go on. I don't buy into this whole idea of the, the curse of the odd numbers in Star Trek films. That's bullshit. That's absolute bullshit. The odd ones are usually the best. 
Uh, well, I'll save that. But but I mean, they're, they're all great. I, I, I don't I don't understand that 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 whole argument. Maybe we'll get into what the what the the reality around that argument is here in a second. Um, so let's go. So that was number eight, the final frontier. Let's go into number seven. This would be Star Trek Insurrection. Um, this is also much like uh, uh, the final frontier. It is a movie of moments. There are very funny moments in this film. There are. It is very Star Trek. It is a. Uh, and, you know, it's very Star Trek in how it displays things. Like, you get to see a lot more full realization of the 24th century. I really like that. Um, I loved the new dress uniforms, the white uniforms, even though I'm a, you know, I wear all black all the time. I did like the new, those, those new dress uniforms. I thought that was cool. Um, I love the idea of exploring not having technology. I thought it was great for Star Trek to get, to address that as in that that is a completely valid choice. For a race of people or for, you know, a community of people, whatever, like the Baku in this, to choose. I thought that was great. Like, you know, because Star Trek is so, except for Deep Space Nine, which Ira Stephen Burr, the, the guy that was largely, you know, the creative force behind Deep Space Nine, you know, he always says, like, he says, I cannot stand the fact that Star Trek, oh, the technology just always works. He's like, no, that's bullshit. So technology never really works that well. He says, you know, let, let's show the failures in technology. And you got to see that in Deep Space Nine. And I thought it was great that we got to see it in, uh, in Insurrection. We got to see kind of a counter narrative to what Starfleet had been putting out there. Even the idea of like, of exploration saying, you know, what's, you know, like the Baku where, where they would say, you know, what's out there that we can't experience here, you know, in their community and in their little paradise. And, you know, of course they don't have time either. And they're kind of living forever. That that's nice. But anyway, I thought that was great to, to inject that other narrative, you know, that counter narrative into Star Trek. And there's some solid points made in that, I think. Uh, you know, speaking as a tech enthusiast, I think that there's some solid points made in that movie about the nature of technology uh, that that a lot of people seem to ignore. And maybe that's maybe that's why people get turned off by it, because they don't want to hear that anti-technology. It's not really anti-technology. It's just an alternative. But they don't want to hear that alternative narrative. What a pity, because it's it's a damn fine film uh, and it has a lot of fun, uh, like with, um, you know, Worf going through puberty and all that. <laughs> I thought that was really cool. Uh, and and. Yeah, lots of great stuff. And talking about the nature of the Prime Directive and everything, uh, I just, I thought that was fantastic. Um, I really, really appreciated like the respect given to to alternative cultures and that being shown off by uh, by Starfleet, you know, by, well, by Picard anyway. Uh, and the arguments with, uh, you know, with that Admiral and everything, all, just good stuff. So Insurrection's a fine film. Put that at number seven, really enjoyed it. It also has a great score. It has one of the best scores in Star Trek history. Um, also by Jerry Goldsmith, which people seem to ignore uh, or forget about anyway, because they don't want to think about the movie. Okay, let's get into number six. Number six is Insurrection's predecessor, that being First Contact, Star Trek First Contact. Uh, this gets put at number one for a lot of people now. Uh, a lot of people, I remember at the time when it came out, uh, I saw it twice in the same day. Um, I remember when it came out, people were saying, that this was the best one since Star Trek II. This was like, this was the next generation's, uh, you know, real coup de grace uh, in, in theaters. Um, I agree. It's a great movie. Dealing with the Borg, you know, the way they, they made the Borg all the more terrifying, which was amazing. I thought it was great. There were some very sexy moments, especially, uh, you know, even with the Borg queen, she kind of came off as sexy. That's, that's a hard trick to pull off, and they did it. <laughs> you know, like when she blows on Data's, you know, newly organic skin. It's like, was that good for you? Oh, man, the, the, some of that was great. 
uh, you know, and getting Picard with his shirt off. I thought that was phenomenal. He, I mean, just, he looked fantastic. I mean, Patrick Stewart, you know, found a youth, God damn it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, first contact had a lot going for it. Um, the, the whole origin story of the war of warp drive, uh, you know, was that from Cochran meeting the Vulcans and all this, all, all just, just great, great stuff. Seeing the enterprise E for the first time. Well, I would have loved to have seen the enterprise E in some more action, uh, you know, uh, you, you never really got to explore the Enterprise E too much. That's probably why Nemesis still has a soft spot in my heart because you got to see a lot of the Enterprise E finally. Um, you know, the big sovereign class, no pun intended here, as I am Brian Sovereign, of course. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I thought that that was, uh, you know, First Contact was really, really good. I think I saw it like three or four times in theaters. Like it, it was, it's a great movie. You know, by any metric. And I think you it's one of those rare Star Trek moments where you could sit down, watch it, and you don't need to know the history or anything. It's just so goddamn engaging. Uh, having Jerry Goldsmith come back to do the score was a brilliant move. It's a great score, one of the best done. Um, you know, everything about it was just great. I, I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, you know, and I forgot to mention with Nemesis, the other thing I liked about Nemesis, one of the moments, was seeing Admiral Janeway. Nice touch. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, um, I really, really liked, um, uh, first contact. I, th- I thought that was, that was just fantastic stuff, but you don't need me to tell you more about that because most people love first contact. You're here to get the original ideas. Uh, so let's move on to, uh, to number five. Um, that being the voyage home, I'll admit to you, Star Trek four, the voyage home, you know, now we're leaving the next generation crew and we're going back to, we we've covered all of the next generation movies. So none of the next generation movies are in my top five. Uh, the entire top five is all original series films. Um, the voyage home, Star Trek four, the voyage home directed by the great Leonard Nimoy, the late great Leonard Nimoy, high grandfather, um, was when I was a kid was my favorite because it's so funny. It's such a funny goddamn film. <laughs> like, like, and 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 it, it did a good job of not being too funny, which they could have pulled off, or you know, which they they could have easily you know ran into. Uh, Star Trek five, Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home, number five on my list. Again, it, it's just it's great. It has a very unique concept, even though it's still time travel. You know, going after the whales and all that—that that was really interesting. Uh, I mean, there just there was there was a lot a lot to love about that movie. Most people recognize Star Trek Four as being that great. Uh, in fact, Star Trek Four—I don't know the exact numbers. Either Star Trek Into Darkness is the highest-grossing Star Trek film, not just domestically but internationally of all time, and it beat out First Contact and um, and Star Trek Four. Or Star Trek Four was the big one, and, and maybe First Contact was just touching what Star Trek, the money Star Trek Four did, or the money that the Voyage Home did. Uh, that's how popular this was. It was a high-grossing film. It guaranteed that we got Star Trek Six because Star Trek Five was a flop. You know, the Final Frontier, which we already covered. Uh, it guaranteed that we we got that, and I'm glad you know that it did. Um, but Star Trek Four was just, I mean, it was you know, it's not just that the, that it was funny or that it was relatable because it took place in 20th century Earth. What was really cool about it was kind of the rebelliousness of Kirk, you know, like flying a bird of prey. You know, he had the, they had the Klingon bird of prey through the whole thing instead of, you know, using, um, instead of having a Starfleet ship. Like that was, that was kind of subconsciously really cool, I think, especially back in 1987 when this first came out. Um, so uh, yeah, Star Trek, I don't want, I don't need to spend a whole time, a whole ton of time on Star Trek four. Uh, you know, on my, which is number five on my list. I don't want to be confusing here, but the voyage home was great. Uh, just a fantastic, you know, little film. Obviously everybody was having a lot of fun. 
Um, I remember the thing I liked most about it in many ways was you got to see was in the beginning, you got to see San Francisco in the future. You know, you got to see 23rd century San Francisco. And at the end, you got to, you got to see uh, 23rd century San Francisco. And you got to see a lot more of how the United Federation of Planets worked. Like, you got to see the Federation Council. You got to see all these different things. And I thought that was really great. Um, I, I enjoyed that. Also, it should be noted that in Star Trek, the beginning of Star Trek Four, a lot of people forget this, but you get, and this is 1987, you get a black female starship captain at the very beginning of the film when she encounters the probe. Uh, that that was, you know, that in some way, I mean, for Star Trek, that was groundbreaking. And for a lot of other things, even in 1987, that was kind of groundbreaking <laughs> at the time. Uh, so, that, so that was that was really cool. A uh, lot to love about the, the voyage home. And lots of comedy, you know, of course, nuclear vessels, you know, with, with Walter Koenig. That was great, which was all ad lib, by the way. Um, so let's go to number four. Uh, number four is one that also often gets ranked very highly, and that is the undiscovered country. The Star Trek VI, the undiscovered country. Uh, number four on my list. It is, it is a perfect movie. Like there, there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Um, the, you know, speaking of with Star Trek four, how you got to see a lot of the, the United, the Federation, how you got to see a lot of the Federation. This also has that where you got to see tons of how the Federation works. Um, I mean, just, a, just, a, you know, and oh boy, man, Kim Cattrall uh, in it, you know, playing a Vulcan. Ooh, baby. <laughs> uh, it was originally supposed to be Savick. Uh, you know, it was supposed to be, they, they couldn't get Robin Curtis, which interesting story about Robin Curtis. She actually... Uh, she was born in Utica, New York, which is around where I was born. You know, the city that I, Utica, New York City, you know, back and forth with, with my my growing up. Um, and so that was cool. You know, <laughs> and like, in fact, I knew people, I was friends with people that went to high school with, uh, you know, with, with Robin Curtis, who played Savick in Star Trek 3 and Star Trek 4. Um, so anyway, you know, you had Kim Cattrall in, playing, playing the Vulcan lead in Star Trek 6. Uh, she did a great job. Uh, all the a lot of the lines, a lot of the humor was fantastic. It's a classic whodunit film, uh, you know, with with some Klingon intrigue in it, and and it just and it worked. It just worked really, really well. The style was perfect. Everything, the score. In fact, the score was kind of unique. Was it Clint Mansell? I think it was Clint Mansell that did the store that, that did the soundtrack for Star Trek VI. No, no other Star Trek soundtrack sounds like it, but it's great. He really, I mean, he really delivered on that. Uh, Sulu being in command of the Excelsior, you know, there's that great part where like they're trying to, to get to this assassination attempt. And, uh, and the guy's like, you know, Sulu, you know, of course being played by George, the great George Takei at that point. Like, I love the moment where, you know, it's just, I mean, they're, they're trying to get there so quickly. They're trying to get to, to, to the Kidama Accords so fast, uh, that the, the, the Excelsior is literally shaking. Like the whole ship is shaking. And the guys, you know, Sulu's saying, you know, come on, come on, you know, go faster. And the guy's like, oh, fly apart. And Sulu just says, fly her apart then, you know. And I mean, it just, you got that real sense of family in this with, with all the characters, even though it took, uh, took place over two ships. And it was so cool to see another ship in action. I mean, beyond the Constitution class, like really see it in action. You really got to see the Excelsior class doing its thing, uh, which I thought was cool. So um, just, a, yeah, fantastic. Star Trek VI was the grand send off for the original crew. 
pretty much, uh, minus the 20 minutes, the, the phenomenal 20 minutes at the beginning of Generations that we talked about earlier in the show. Uh, and it was great. I, I just, I thought it was, it was so, so cool. Um, you know, it, it was a great, a great send off. Um, and, you know, even though they were going to decommission the enterprise and all that, you know, uh, and of course, Spock saying go to hell over that whole thing. That was, that was great. So enjoyed that. Uh, Star Trek, Star Trek six. Awesome. I don't need to convince you of why that was so great. Really. It's the later films in this movie that I need, maybe needed to convince though. You might, we're in the top three now. Here we go. The, the, the bottom or the top three, this, I might need to convince you on some of them. All right. Number three is the wrath of Khan. You're probably shocked that it's number three and not number one or number two. Um, but I don't need to explain why the Wrath of Khan is so good. Uh, it, it is, you know, in many ways, it is the quintessential Star Trek film that most people remember. I mean, it has, in my opinion, it has its flaws. And I can't tell you what those are until we get to Star Trek one. Or, or, or oh, I gave it away until we get to number one, whatever. You people already knew what my favorite Star Trek movie was anyway. Um, but Wrath of Khan is, is, is phenomenal. It's a movie that I cried at when Spock dies. I mean, it's, it's tragic to have the connection to the original series by bringing back Khan was brilliant. Um, I mean, most people, you have to understand this up until like 1999, when a lot of people thought science fiction films, two things that came to mind for them and Star Wars is not really science fiction, but Star Wars came up and Star Trek II: the Wrath of Khan came up for people. This was the poster child for how great a Star Trek movie can be and what's or how great a science fiction movie could be and what's so so shocking about it. Here's what's so shocking is that this is regularly number one for most people. And I totally respect that opinion why this is the number one Star Trek film for so many people. Here's what's amazing about it. It was made by the Paramount Television Division. That was the production team. It wasn't made by a motion picture production team, you know, by, by, a, by a film production team. It was made by the television production team. To, and, and to look that good, to, to be that great of a movie, holy fucking shit, that's an achievement. Most people don't know that about the film. Uh, and the director's cut has been something that has, you, you know, been bantied about. There was a, a new release of uh, the director's cut on Blu-ray. It's beautiful. Uh, the director's cut does add stuff to it. You, you know, getting the extra scenes is just icing on the cake. You really couldn't improve this film in any way. Uh, it, it is so, so fucking great. Uh, so I, I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from, you know, from the wrath of Khan by putting it at number three. Uh, it, it is, it is a great movie. And if anybody considers it their favorite, I totally respect that opinion. Uh, Ricardo Montalban is Khan delivers the goods right and left. I mean, he is phenomenal and he was in such great shape. He was such a stud. In that, and that was his real chest. I have that confirmed that that was like, you know, cause he looks really muscular. He looks in great shape. That was just Ricardo in great shape and God damn it. Did, did he deliver, uh, just a, just a fantastic, fantastic movie. And into darkness did a great job of remixing a lot of what happens in this movie, you know, it's where Kirk dies instead to where Spock screams out Khan instead of Kirk, which is an epic moment. Uh, you know, all of this, like the cool, the cool moments in, in, in the wrath of Khan, like when, when they're on the, when they're in the Genesis cave and everybody, you know, Savick, uh, played by, uh, at the time, I think it was her first role played by Kirstie Alley, which, Ooh, boy, that was hot. Um, <laughs> when they're in the Genesis cave 
And they're talking about, you know, how he beat the Kobe, how Kirk beat the Kobayashi Maru test, how he changed the conditions of the test. By the way, that was great to see that fully realized in the 2009 Star Trek. Um, and they think that everything's over. The Enterprise is dead in space and all this stuff. And then suddenly, you know, Kirk's communicator goes off and Spock says, it's been two hours, are you ready? Or, you know, and Kirk picks it up and says, Spock, it's been two hours, are you ready? And, and Spock says, right on time, Admiral. Uh, you know? <laughs> And he has that apple and he just says, I don't like to lose. And he eats the apple. Oh, man, what a badass moment. I, you know, it, it's just, it's a fact. Kirk is my favorite Star Trek character. You know, it's not, you know, the original series isn't my favorite Star Trek show, but he is my favorite Star Trek character. He is, he is the nexus of Star Trek. He really is. Uh, everybody is even, you know, there's people, and, I, and I, I appreciate this perspective, there's people who say that, you know, they like Picard better than they like Kirk. I get it. But let's face the fact that every single Star Trek character is compared to, you know, you know is compared to Kirk. Kirk is the measuring stick for everybody else. That's just how it is. I mean, is it just because he was the first? Yeah, fine. You know, even though there's, you know, we could talk about Captain Pike, who I like, I, you know, Jeff Hunter did a great job of that too. Okay, that, fine, I get that. Okay, but he is really, he is the measuring stick for every other captain, for every other character. And that gives him prominence in my book. Yeah, I, you know, I, even in Star Trek Voyager, I, like when he, there's, there is an episode where he gets mentioned, I think it's in the second season. And where like, you know, where Jane, Captain Janeway, who I think she was a great captain, where she says, you know, something to the effect of, is like, boy, what was it like to be in the 23rd century? You know, those cowboy days in Starfleet with Captain Kirk and all this stuff, you know? And, and like, the, the way she just relishes, like, in the, the bravado, you know, and, and just the, the, the charisma that Kirk brings is how I see the character as well, you know? Um, I'm reminded of the line from Free Enterprise, like, you know, with Captain Kirk, that's everything you ever, you know, he was the, the culmination of everything I, I wanted to be as a man. You know, and, and to some degree, I've had points in my life where I certainly felt that way, <laughs> you know. Uh, so anyway, Star Trek II, just awesome. You don't need me to tell you that. You know that. Uh, but let's, now I need to defend, th- this is where maybe I need to speak a little bit. And I know we're an hour and a half into the special, so thank you for sticking with me if you have. Um, my, my number two and my number one picks, okay, I need to start, I need to defend these. Number two is The Search for Spock. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. This, this movie is so important. And it's so amazing. You know, Leonard Nimoy directed it, of course. James Horner does the score. James Horner also did the score, the the late uh, James Horner. He died last year. Uh, He did the score for Star Trek II. Did a great job with that. Also achieved where, you know, getting away from a lot of the classic themes of the show... He delivered, you know, some of his own themes on it. Star Trek Three, I feel like, was the fully realized version of a lot of the themes that were getting laid out in Star Trek Two. So the score for Star Trek Three is—it's not my favorite. The next one is that we'll get to, but it's—it's it's my number two favorite, uh, you know, Star Trek soundtrack. Easy. Um, I have literally, you know, backing the the, the space dock or leaving space dock theme on the soundtrack. I've played that so many times when I'm leaving the garage <laughs> with a car. And if you've seen it, you'd, you'd get it. Uh, believe me, I do it all the time. Um, that was awesome. Uh, the, 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 the rebelliousness of that movie, you know, Kirk just saying like, fuck you to, to Starfleet, 
you know, and everything and, and just stealing the enterprise. I'm taking it on my own. All of that was, was so cool. Uh, and in fact, even I love the point where the guy who's, uh, I think is a, a Colonel or a Commodore who's captaining the Excelsior at that point, the NX 2000 is before Sulu gets it. You know, when he says to Kirk, Kirk, if you do the, if you, you know, because he's stealing the Enterprise. Kirk is stealing the Enterprise. So if you do this, you know, meaning if you leave, you'll never hurt captain of the, you know, uh, you'll never be the captain of a Starfleet ship again. And Kirk just says, warp speed. I was like, man, yeah, you know. <laughs> oh, the, there's there's so much there's so much greatness in in in, the, in Star Trek three, uh, and and everybody gets to really deliver a lot of great acting, like really like like Sulu gets to deliver a lot. McCoy gets to deliver a lot. And even though Spock isn't in it so much, the points when he is in it are phenomenal. I mean, like, like they're, they're really, they, there's just that commanding presence with him, you know, with what Nimoy can do that he can always do. Uh, just, just amazing. And I mean, I could go on and on. There, there's so many great things, you know, and the, the best part for me and what puts it, what would almost put it at my number one spot is in Star Trek II, here's a flaw with Star Trek II that, I, that, that annoys the hell out of me. I mean, it's a perfect movie, but there's a, there's a philosophical concept in it that I think is ridiculous. And that is when Spock says in Star Trek II, he says the needs of the many outweigh, or the needs of the few outweigh the needs of the one. That is such horseshit. Such horseshit. If we didn't have Star Trek III, because Star Trek III, Kirk makes it very clear Kirk solves the problem. Thankfully, the humans, you know, outwit the Vulcans on this one. And says, because the needs of the one, you know, Kirk, Spock asks him, like, why did you save me? Uh, and Kirk said, you know, Kirk just, just comes out and says, he says, because the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. Oh, fuck, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, the rugged individualism. That Star Trek Three displays in just the, the rogue, the rebelliousness, the whole attitude of it, saying "fuck Starfleet, fuck all this shit." We're we're taking our ship and we're gonna go help. We're, you know, we're gonna go save my best friend. That's that is a message you don't get that in almost any film. I mean, you really don't. Not because because I mean, and, and to some degree you can't because you don't have Starfleet's history, you know, and everything you know about Starfleet and all this stuff. You don't get that very often in any form of entertainment outside of something that some libertarian wrote. This is the movie. The, the, the whole greatness of Star Trek exists within the search for Spock. Uh, I, I mean, really. Like, that, that's my argument for the film. Uh, and it is. It's very good. Like, the, everything about it otherwise is very good. The directing is great. There's a reason Leonard Nimoy got to direct Star Trek IV. Um, you know, the, the effects look great. Uh, getting to see more of the Federation look great. The lines are great. Man, when, when uh, uh, um, Christopher Lloyd, who d- plays a hell of a Klingon, okay, when he kills off, or, you know, when he orders Kirk's son, David, who you meet in Star Trek II, to be killed, And the way Kirk, the way William Shatner acts that scene, where he just steps back, misses the captain's chair, the most comfortable seat in the world to him, and he misses it, and he just falls to the floor, and is just saying, "You Klingon bastard! You killed my son!" 
Are you kidding me? How, how, I mean, the Oscars are bullshit. He should have gotten an Oscar for that. That was amazing. I mean, just brilliant acting. Every, there's moment after moment. Then, when the Enterprise is getting destroyed in Star Trek Three, you know, the NCC-1701, and eventually end up with the A in, the ne- in Star Trek Four. Like, that's almost a tear-jerking moment in and of itself, seeing the Enterprise disintegrating and being destroyed. And when it's, you know, going out in a blaze of glory over, you know, over Genesis, over the Genesis planet, when, you know, when Kirk just looks at it and says, my God, Bones, what have I done? You know, and, and then Bones just so beautifully replies with uh, what you had to do, what you always do, turn death into a fighting chance to live. Oh, Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> it's so exciting. I want to watch it right now because it's such a good film. And it's kind of, you know, it, uh, oh, I, they're the best moments in Star Trek history, in my opinion. They, they, they just are. Uh, and also, you know, I think some people might argue that, well, but without the tragic incident of Star Trek II with Spock dying, Star Trek III doesn't really make sense, so it can't really be better than Star Trek II. Yeah, but they, they were very smart to put the ending of Star Trek Two into the beginning of Star Trek Three to like to do the rehash. They they were very very smart to do that, and so it is a cohesive film. In fact, I remember growing up, I saw for the longest time I saw Star Trek Three, and I never saw Star Trek Two. Like it was just it happened to be the VHS that I had laying around. Um, but anyway, enough of Star Trek Three. Let's get into my number one spot and let's let's get this baby closed off, because my number one spot was the very first film that I ever saw. In fact, it's the very first movie I can ever really remember uh, ever seeing at all. Not not just Star Trek, but just of anything. Uh, I remember v- being very young, and it was an ABC Saturday night movie. I can even remember, and maybe some of my listeners will remember this with me, I can even remember some of the, um, like the, the intros. Like it was the winter, and so, you know, the ABC Saturday Night Movie, you know, and it, it showed a log cabin house with a little smoke coming out of it and the ABC symbol and saying the Saturday Night Movie. Uh, you know, that, that was how they, they would come in from the commercial break. And uh, we had VCRs at the time, uh, which, by the way, the last VCR was just made recently in Japan. Now they're not making any more. What a pity. Maybe I'll talk about that on uh, episode 186 or 187 of Sovereign Tech, whatever. Um. In fact, I think every time I've said 185 in this, I think I meant 186. My apologies. Moving on. Um, in episode 187, maybe I'll talk about that. So we recorded it. So I watched Star Trek The Motion Picture so many fucking times. Like I watched it over and over again because it's all I had. But, you know, when you're a kid, and I mean, I was a little kid, you know, six, maybe even younger. When you're a kid and you're seeing like, the, the thing with Star Trek, the motion picture, I get the, this is my number one pick. Okay. I get that people thought it was boring. All right. I understand. I, and I understand why it's not action packed, especially when you look at Star Trek two, you know, or even Star Trek three, it's not an action packed film. This is a very cerebral film. Um, but before I get into that, you know, it is a movie that is, you know, we talk about fully realized. That's one of the beauties of Star Trek. You got a fully realized epic version of the 23rd century in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Right down to that six to eight minute scene of showing off, uh, you know, the, the new, the, re, the refitted uh, Enterprise, which I love that scene. I, I, I mean, that, that scene can bring me to tears, I'll admit. Uh, just, just phenomenal, you know, that, getting to see all that. 
So when you're a kid and you're seeing like all this eye candy of this fully realized future, I mean, that's exciting. Fuck the action, man. You're, you're, you're getting to see, you know, what the future looks like. And it's so well done. Like they really thought that shit out big time. I mean, they had Isaac Asimov on the consultancy team for that movie. And you're going to tell me that's a bad fucking movie? Are you kidding? It's beautiful. It's a gorgeous film. Like, I mean, it's just a stunning, stunning film. Um, so I give it a lot of credit for that. The, so for one, it fully realized Star Trek's future, showing it off. It did a great job of that. The second thing that I love about this movie, and this is the point I bring up all the time whenever I talk about Star Trek the motion picture, is that Star Trek overall had this, at least this uh, 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 spoken message of peace, of nonviolence in all this. But in almost every episode, at least in the original series and even a good chunk of the next generation and all that, you know, it's always action, action, fire phasers, blah, 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 you know, and all this bullshit. Star Trek The Motion Picture is that rare two and some odd hours of Star Trek where Starfleet, real other than taking out an asteroid because it was a problem, never fired a shot. They never fired a shot. They solved it all with brain power. The Klingons fire off a shot, you know, at V'ger in the beginning, but Starfleet never does. They actually live up to their peaceful mantra, you know, in all this. Uh, so that that makes it great Star Trek for me alone. Um, but again, you know, the acting is good. I don't get, I know people want to say that like, I don't know, there's some funny moments in that. Now, Star Trek, the motion picture is an odd animal in that there's like four different cuts of this movie. And there are scenes that I can quote that are not in any version of it that you can get right now. Because there was a special longer edition for the VHS. There was the edition played on ABC. Uh, there was the edition, the director's cut that was uh, put out about a decade ago, which is really good. Uh, that had Robert Wise involved. It was uh, that's the version I recommend people check out because they did a good job with updating a lot of the effects and all that. Um, and then there, you know, there's the Blu-ray version that's out there right now, which I had the pleasure. Fortunately, I, I got to go to like a kind of a uh, a theater house showing, uh, and and they were having fun. They thought it was a joke to play Star Trek the motion picture. Like they're like, oh yeah, we're just we're gonna play bad films and all this stuff at, at this local theater in uh, in Utica. But I didn't take it as a joke. I was like, fuck, I can't wait to see this. You know, I, I bought my tickets right away to to go catch. Uh, so this was would have been like 2009 um, when I got to go see uh, the motion picture in theaters, and it was it was great. It was just beautiful to see that. Um, so there's and there's a lot more to like about Star Trek the motion picture uh, V'ger like all that all those are very fascinating concepts there is the idea that Gene Roddenberry himself toyed with that V'ger was you know, that the machine planet you see that V'ger is from is actually the origin of the Borg in fact if you read the book that I mentioned earlier The Return there's mention of that the book by William Shatner uh, which is it's a funny moment but I'll, I'll I'll save that for you to actually read it um, there man like, there, there's so many, and, and the Deltons, still my favorite race, probably, in Star Trek history, this, like, hypersexualized species, that was so cool to, to you know, to get laid out. Um, everything was just on this really grand scale. And there's people that don't like that. There's people that hate that six to eight minute sequence of showing off the, re, the refitted Enterprise. I love it for that. And so that gets to my point, is that there's things that people see as negatives that I think are great. I think the lack of action in the motion picture makes it the best movie. I think that the, you know, the grandioseness, you know, and showing off the solar system and all that is what makes it a great movie. Other people think that it, it fucks with pacing. I don't agree. 
You know, so, but I understand your points. I get that. But that's, for me, Star Trek is all about that full realization about that peaceful existence or peaceful coexistence, like, uh, uh, like Captain Sisko, or at the time he was Commander Sisko said, in The Emissary, that, that great, uh, that whole great speech that he gives, uh, you know, to the prophets in that, um, in Deep Space Nine. So it was just, it was Star, it was what, you know, Star Trek, the motion picture for me in many ways, other than the, the you know, the fact that V'ger is going to wipe out Earth potentially, um, is a day in the life of Star Trek. And it's so cool to see that kind of that, you know, it's, to see that. It's a lot more than that, but it's great to see that. And the soundtrack, holy fucking shit. Jerry Goldsmith, Jerry Goldsmith gave John, you know, understand that, that the motion picture was originally you know, or it was originally going to be a TV series. Paramount was going to have another network. And then they, they changed their mind because Star Wars was such a hit. And they're like, okay, no, we want to get, you know, Star Trek into theaters. So let, let's make a movie. Um, in which, you know, it ended up coming out in 79, two years after, you know, after Star Wars. Uh, you know, John Williams did an amazing thing with the Star Wars soundtrack. No doubt about that. Okay, but I, I dare say Jerry Goldsmith gave John Williams a run for his money on any single one of his soundtracks with the motion picture soundtrack. It's that good. And it is that good. Ilea's theme, uh, the, the opening theme, which ended up getting used for the Next Generation theme song. Uh, I, I mean, V'ger, you know, the music for V'ger, even the Klingon music, you know, dun, 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 all that ended up getting used for decades in Star Trek. Uh, he set the tone and he did a hell of a job. Uh, so I think particularly with the director's cut, which the director's cut has never been released on Blu-ray. If it ever does, I'm getting my hands on it. I guarantee you. Uh, it's only on, there's like a, there was a special two disc or hell, maybe it was like a four disc um, a DVD edition of the director's cut. That's the version of that you want to watch if you've never seen it. Uh, it. It's really good. Robert Wise was there. You know, I mean, Robert Wise, filler on the roof, blah, blah, blah. Uh, right. That was him or was that Kirshner? Well, whatever. Anyway, Robert Wise is great. Um, you know, he was involved in, in, you know, getting everything redone and making everything look good. There's still more scenes. There was a time, and I really wish this would happen. There was a time where they talked about, uh, you know, Paramount was talking about taking storyboards for Star Trek, the motion picture, putting in voiceover, you know, vo voice acting from all the original actors. Of course, most of them are dying now. Uh, so that would be very tough to do. And and making the three-hour cut of that film and going all the way with it, I would have I would have wanted to see that. I In fact, maybe someday that could still happen. You know, if CGI gets to that point, when you watch The Jungle Book, you can't help but think it couldn't. Um, I would love to see that happen. So, uh, you know, because, I mean, this was a really epic, epic, epic film. Um, and, and that's, and it's the most epic one in my opinion. And so I, I give it number one spot. It's been the number one spot for me forever. It's always been my favorite Star Trek film. Um, even as, you know, like I was able to consciously be aware of Star Trek movies coming out from generations on. I, I don't, I think I remember going, I think I remember my dad taking me to see like as a baby seeing Star Trek two in theaters. Um, you know, but I, I don't really remember that. But the first one I really remember going to see in theaters was was Generations. Um, and from then on, I mean, even everyone that came out, I was like, nope, the motion picture's better. Nope, the motion picture's better. It always has been. Uh, so anyway, 
Woo! We are done. We have gotten through all of the Star Trek films. Uh, again, I want to reiterate the honorable mention to Free Enterprise. If you're a real Star Trek fan, you're going to want to see that movie if you never have. Um, but yeah, that, that's it. So, so I'm going to do a repeat of it, and then we'll close this up. So number 15, I mentioned uh, Star Trek Horizon, Star Trek Renegades, and Star Trek of Gods and Men, if you want to check those out, independent films. Number 14, Nemesis. Number 13, Generations. Number 12, Into Darkness. Number 11, woo, Galaxy Quest, baby. <laughs> uh, number 10, the 2009 Star Trek. Number 9, Star Trek Beyond. Uh, number 8, The Final Frontier. Number seven, Insurrection. Number six, First Contact. Number five, The Voyage Home. Number four, The Undiscovered Country. Number three, The Wrath of Khan. Number two, The Search for Spock. Absolutely. And number one, The Motion Picture. Number one is number one, baby. Uh, man, what just such a great, you know, great movie. So as you can see, I don't believe at all in that odd movie curse that, okay, the even Star Trek movies are good. The odd movies are bad. That, that's just total bullshit. And it's always been bullshit. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed this. I had a great time. Star Trek is very exciting right now. Uh, you know, yeah, we have Star Trek discovery coming out. Star Trek beyond was an awesome movie. Hopefully we will get, we will continue to get that fourth movie. I think the international box office is going to speak and I can really understand like, you know, why movies like Star Trek do great internationally because, you know, if you're in some developing country, I mean, and you see that fully realized future, like we keep talking about, that's exciting. Yeah, where, how can, you know, can I pay six bucks to go see that? I mean, shit, yeah, you know. <laughs> um, so hopefully we'll be getting Star Trek movies forever. And I'm very excited about the new TV show. Uh, I think that's, that's an exciting prospect, you know. And Star Trek is so needed, especially right now. Star Trek is so important because it is that positive outlook on the future. Even when it has dark hours, which are good, it's good to change the pace. Um, it, you know, it really, it is that hopeful future that we're going to make it, you know, and that's a message, whether you agree with how Star Trek makes it or not, you know, some people get hot and bothered on, oh, it's socialism, it's this, blah, 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 whatever. Okay. Uh, if you ever want me to talk about that sort of thing, of course, you can ask through Patreon. You can ask me through the Patreon messaging service or send me an email, uh, brian at zomiofflinegames.com. And, uh, and I'll talk about it on a Patreon episode if you like. I could do it for a Q&A. If you want me to talk about the politics of Star Trek, perhaps, or Trekonomics, there's a book called that that just came out. Um, anyway, you know, regardless of, of all that, it's just so great to see a hopeful vision of the future. It's great to see that we'll make it, that we'll thrive, that, uh, you, you know, that we go forward. Uh, and Star Trek Beyond, the latest movie, really actually had that message to where we're getting past, um, you know, some of these these strategies that didn't work before, like violence, you know, and militaries and all this. Uh, which is interesting based upon some other things done within the Kelvin timeline, but whatever, I'll take the message for what, it, what it's worth. I love the quote in Star Trek Beyond where Kirk says, it's better to die saving lives than to live to take them. Uh, that, that's, that's another, you know, right up there with Star Trek III having just a great zinger um, of a philosophical, you know, precept uh, or concept there uh, that I really enjoyed. But that is, you know, the real message to take away, I think, from Star Trek in general or at least the Star Trek movies, uh, which some people, you know, there's people out there that only like the Star Trek movies. Hey, good for you. I mean, that, that's, that's totally fine. But the real thing to take away from the Star Trek movies, particularly the original films, is that the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. And I can't think of any message more anarchist than that. 
And uh, kudos, you know, that certainly stands in stark contrast to what a lot of people think about Star Trek. In fact, I'll tell you, uh, I'll, I'll, end, I'll end off with this. Star Trek Three. I put that in my number two spot. I was talking with a, with a great friend um, last night about this. And he actually said it before I even said to it, but I agreed. And I, I kind of felt the same, you know, I've, I've, I've felt the same for a while. That the reason Star Trek Three gets such a bad rap, gets such a bad reputation, is because of that line. Nobody likes hearing that line because, you know, something that's in movies a lot. Oh boy, here I am. Here I go. All right. I promise I'm going to end this here in a minute. One thing, a message that is too creepily, and, and it's even in Star Trek Beyond, unfortunately, but a message that, that, that's just too much injected into every movie, not just Star Trek, but like almost any film you can imagine, especially genre films, is that we got to work together. We got to unite. We got to do this. You know, it's like if we could just unite, oh, they're dividing, conquering us. It's like, oh, they're dividing us over petty stuff. We got to, you know, I think that's total bullshit. In movies, outside of movies, in real life, the idea of unity is nonsense. Like it is total nonsense. You can ask me about that if you want, but I love the. I think the fact that Star Trek Three took the cons, you know, that that the notion of unity and said the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many, like the, that turned that on its head. Well, you know, I think that bothers people. I think that really, really bothers people, and I think that's why you know it gets trashed a lot. Uh, you know, and, or that people just forget about it and they don't want to talk about Star Trek three because there's nothing wrong with that movie. It's a, it's a great film. It, it, it hits all the high notes, all the bars that any other Star Trek movie should. So anyway, I've been going on for about two hours now. We covered every Star Trek film. We broke them down. I gave you my ranking. If you didn't listen to this at all, I totally understand. And if you did listen, Satan bless you <laughs> because I love you too. Okay. <laughs> it's just wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for, you know, for going down this little exploration of ranking of Star Trek with me. I'd love to get content out to you. Uh, let me know if this is, if you want more content of this ilk, uh, and maybe I'll, I'll do some more rankings or, you know, just talking about this sort of thing in general. Uh, so Carpe Lucem, everybody. Thank you so much for being a Cybertech patron. Uh, it means the world to me. I love seeing you. Uh, I'll see you on the other side. Woo! You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com, that's S-O-V-R-Y-N Tech.com, and connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the evolution.